Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Freedom is what Western societies like ours value highly. In other cultures, it might be harmony or perhaps honour. But for us in the West, it is freedom, mostly. I say mostly because of the relative ease with which we all endured those harsh COVID lockdowns in the past few years shows that our concern for safety can sometimes trump freedom. But for what at least, but freedom it is. I mention this because of the last two sentences of the Galatian reading you've just heard. Galatians 5 verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Ignore the unfortunate chapter division added much later than when Paul wrote. This is the climax of the argument from chapter 4, 21 and following. In fact, you might say it's a beautiful summary of the whole letter to the Galatians itself. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, I want to unpack this in two steps. First, by seeing its place in the argument that Paul has here, which will take some work on us because it's not, it's not easy to get, but it's there. Then secondly, come back again and ask the question, what is this freedom for which Christ has set us free and contrast it with the freedom which is valued in Western liberal democracies? As I said, it is for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery comes as the climax of Paul's argument from verse 21 of chapter 4, which is another round in what I call the Abraham Wars. For the last two chapters, three and four of Galatians, the argument has swirled around the figure of Abraham, a man who lived some 1800 years before Galatians was written. You may ask why? Why this battle over Abraham? The answer is this, Abraham is central to Paul and his readers because he is central, this late Bronze Age Middle Eastern figure, is central in God's purposes for humanity. It was Abraham and his descendants, his seed, to whom God made great promises of blessing and life. And so who are his descendants is a vital question. Who will receive the promises of life and blessing? Or rather, it became vital and contested question for the Galatians because of what happened after Paul left them after that whirlwind tour in which he proclaimed Christ and founded churches. After Paul had proclaimed the risen Christ as Lord, the mainly Roman and Greek Galatians, their ancestors were probably, of all things, Celts, by the way, but the, now they were Greek speakers, and also there were many um, ex-soldiers who'd been settled in Roman cities in the area. When they heard the gospel, the, the crucified Jesus was Lord, Many of them turned from their numerous customary deities that they worshipped and were baptised into Christ. 
all was well. But others arrived after Paul had moved on. Like Paul, they were Jewish believers. Unlike Paul, their message was that the Galatian believers were lacking something important. They could not be true members of Abraham's family, not true descendants of Abraham, and therefore fully part of the promise of blessing and life, because they were not observing the important customs of the law, in particular, male circumcision. And the Galatians, frankly, were, were being rocked to and fro. Now, this whole letter to the Galatians arises from Paul's utter conviction that, rather than being an improved gospel, this teaching was no gospel at all. Worse, it was a denial of the gospel, a desertion of the one who called them in the grace of Christ. And that is why, after at some length explaining where he's coming from, that's the first two chapters of Galatians, he devotes the next two, or what would become the next two, on the question of who is and who is not a true inheritor of the promises to Abraham. That is, who will receive the blessings promised to Abraham? Who's regarded as one of the righteous by God himself? Who truly belongs? And Paul throws everything in, at this in an effort to get the Galatians to see sense and reject the dangerous teaching of the others who've turned up who are saying that only adherents of the law of Moses are inheritors of Abraham's promises. And so he tells them, one, it is those who have faith in God's promises like Abraham did, who are blessed along with Abraham. Two, the promise to Abraham and his offspring is not through the law of Moses, but through Christ, the true offspring. Three, you are all one in Christ Jesus, and therefore you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. Four, Look, even we Jews were in effect like slaves under the law until Christ came. So don't you go back that way. Five, and so on. As we heard last week from Justin's sermon, Paul is almost at his wit's end. In verse 19 of chapter 4 he says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. Although well, here next week his tone gets even more aggressive, uh, but that's for next week. Well, then he tries one more argument. Which was our reading. Tell me, he says, you who want to be under the law, are you aware of what the law says? Notice, like Jews of the time, he uses the word law to refer to all the writings of the first five books of Moses, not just the commandments and instructions. Yes, again, it is about Abraham with a new angle. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. The story of Abraham's two sons is found in Genesis 16 through 21. Simply put, it goes like this. Although Abraham is promised blessing through his children, through his son, he and his wife Sarah don't seem to be able to have children at all. So in an arrangement that seems strange to us, Sarah, his wife, organises it so that Abraham sleeps with her Egyptian slave as a kagar, as a kind of substitute, surrogate. This happens, and Sagar Hagar becomes pregnant, and she does bear Abraham a son, Ishmael. 
Then 14 years later, the Lord appears to Abraham and promises him that Sarah, his wife, will indeed have a son within the year. Sure enough, despite their age, Sarah bears Abraham a son, Isaac. So you have two women, the slave woman and her son Ishmael, the wife and her son Isaac. And Paul picks up on the different way each son came about in verse 23. His son, Abraham's son by the slave woman, was born according to the flesh. That's a reference to the make-do arrangement with Hagar substituting for Sarah. But the son by the free woman is born as a result of a divine promise. That's the Lord's promise to Abraham that Sarah would bear him a son. And then Paul develops a series of oppositions between the children of the two women considered figuratively. These things, he writes, are taken to be figurative or, or allegorical, the word he uses. The two women represent two covenants. A covenant is a structured relationship, a promise, two ways in which you can be children of Abraham. Hagar, Sarah. Hagar, one covenant, he writes, is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Mount Sinai is where the law of Moses was given and the Mosaic covenant sealed. That's Hagar. And then Paul makes a move from Hagar, from Sinai rather, to slavery to the present city of Jerusalem in, in verse 25. Now he writes, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children. Now that rather unexpected geographical information about Mount Sinai being in Arabia might make more sense to us when we realise that Hagar, through Ishmael, is the mother or the ancestor for the Arab people. The Arab people. That is, Mount Sinai, Paul says, is situated in the land of the Arab people, the, the children of the slave woman. That's why the link of slavery and Sinai is emphasised. Now, in passing, we can note that Paul, at least, did not think Mount Sinai is in what we now call the Sinai Peninsula. But further south, across the Gulf of Akbar, in present-day Saudi Arabia. Just thought you might be interested. And there's great scholarly debate about this, where it really is. I, I tend to follow St Paul on this one. Anyway, back to Galatians 4. Then Paul links Mount Sinai in Arabia with what he calls the present city of Jerusalem, which he says is in slavery with her children. Now, the present city of Jerusalem is where most likely Paul's opponents have come from. It is the centre of Jewish life and identity. Why does Paul say Jerusalem is in slavery with her children? Well, one reason might be found in the large fortress called the Antonia, after Mark Antony, that overlooked the temple. There's the temple. There's this large fortress on the northeastern side, a Roman fortress, a visible sign of the power of Roman conquerors, 
to keep order and keep control, right next to the place where the Lord's name dwelt. Jerusalem was not a free city. Another reason Paul may describe Jerusalem as in slavery with her children is that Jerusalem, despite a large active community of thousands of Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you see that in the book of Acts, is still, in a sense, living under the law of Moses in a situation which Paul has already described as no better than a slave. Now this present Jerusalem, Paul contrasts with another Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above. That Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above, is free. That Jerusalem is our mother. That is, like Sarah. That's, that's, that's where he's going with this. Now you may say, what, what is this Jerusalem which is above? Let me put it this way. In the prophets, there are many prophecies, places where as, as the Lord promises to redeem his people and restore them, he promises a new Jerusalem, a new temple, a new Jerusalem. For example, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord, Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream into it. And if you go to the last chapters of the prophet of Ezekiel, you'll have an extensive unpacking of Ezekiel's vision of magnificent new city, magnificent new temple that will, that will be. And many Jews in Paul's day regard that as in a sense already existing with God, already existing with God. Paul seems also to envisage what you may call a heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above, although here in Galatians is the only time he makes reference to it. Although it could be a hint in that famous verse in Philippians 3 verse 20 where Paul says our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, Jesus Christ. It's in the visions of the last book of the New Testament that we have the most explicit treatment of this Jerusalem that is above. Let me read just the first three verses of Revelation chapter 21. This is a vision that he's having of the end of days. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. End of quote. That's what the kind of reality Paul has in mind. A, a holy city which comes from God, which is with God, as it were. Already a believer, Paul says, belongs, for she is our mother. And then Paul quotes a section of Isaiah 45, which in the church NIV Bibles has the heading added in, the future glory of Zion, that is Jerusalem. Although it seems, I mean, thank you for reading it so well, it seems strange. Um, it's actually not about a woman at all directly, it's about, it's about Jerusalem, whom God had in his anger 
got rid of when the, in the Babylonian exile, but now it wants to bring them back. Although it is a bit about a woman because it, it can echo the story of Sarah, who was the childless one. So Paul quotes this, Be glad, O barren woman, who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labour. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than she than of her who has a husband. Sarah, stroke, Jerusalem, that is above. The inheritors of Abraham, who are free. Okay, you with me so far? Two sons, one Abraham, two sons, two mothers, one slave, one free. One child, a child of the flesh, another child of promise. One mother who bears children as slaves, like Mount Sinai, in Arabia, like the present Jerusalem, which is in slavery. The other is identified with the Jerusalem that is above, who is free in our mother. The conclusion? Now, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, sorry, now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. That's the inheritance that brings you the blessing, the inheritance through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And this will be picked up again in verse 31. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Which leads us to, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be again burdened again by a yoke of slavery. But there's a twist. Back in verse 29, Paul alludes to a time when Ishmael, called here the son born according to the flesh, persecuted his younger brother Isaac, who's here called the son born by, the NIV has the power of the spirit, literally born by the spirit. And that contrast of flesh and spirit, you'll come, we'll hear again in the future weeks in, 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 uh, in Galatians, these two principles fighting each other. Now, says Paul, the same thing's happening today. The one born according to the flesh are persecuting those born according to the spirit. Now, we don't quite know what Paul has in mind. Except in Galatians, there's a couple of times when he mentions persecution in connection with preaching a circumcision-free gospel. Somehow or other, the issue of allowing Gentile Galatians, or maybe Gentiles in general, to be treated as full sons of Abraham without circumcision in the law is turning nasty. And so Paul takes Sarah's words to Abraham in Genesis 21 as words to his readers as well. That's verse 30. But what does the scripture say? This is what Sarah told her husband. Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman will not, sons will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Which means in this context, you Galatians reject any thought of taking up life under the law of Moses. It's going back into slavery not inheritance. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That's the context. There's still my question. By the way, I know this material is not that easy to follow, as Paul is coming at a problem that we don't have, not literally, from a way of thinking that is somewhat foreign to us. So thank you for your patience. I've often said that scripture requires humility and patience 
particularly when we're dealing with text, as we almost always are, not written to us, but have authority for us. My question is this. The words, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a load of slavery, are words for you tonight, for us tonight, as much for those wavering Galatians. So the question is, what is this freedom for which Christ has made us free? Let me turn to my opening remarks about how Western societies like ours value freedom highly. But here, freedom means basically, and almost entirely, freedom to choose. Um, in a liberal democracy, in which there is no agreement on the big questions of life, on what life meaning is, what life purpose is, the one thing we do all agree on is the value of, a, of freedom of choice. It's the one thing that keeps us together, the liberal democracy, the belief in freedom to choose. And above all, uh, more recently, I think, the freedom to be the authentic you. Justin explained a couple of weeks ago how this has been a more recent move in, in Western societies, where you look for your authentic self, not in what's outside of what you learn from outsiders, but from within. Rory Shiner and Peter Orr make the same point in their excellent little book on the Apostles' Creed, just out, called The World Next Door. I recommend it very highly. I quote them. We no longer look outside ourselves for fixed points from which meaning can be established. We look inside and seek to discover the authentic self within. The most trustworthy voice is the inner voice. Spoiler alert for every Disney film since the early 1990s. You can be who you want to be. The hero lies within you. That's so true, by the way, if you think about it. Just think what those films are doing to our children. I'm just thinking about this. The world is evangelizing your children with a view of, the, view of self and freedom. Well, that's freedom the contemporary way. The freedom Paul is fighting for here is, is richer and more real. Remember, by the way, in passing, that for Paul and his readers, Freedom versus slavery is not a mere metaphor. They lived in a society with literal slavery. The contrast of slave and free was one they encountered every day. I think to find out the freedom Paul is fighting for what it means is to go back a moment to those texts, I'm going to just two of them, where Paul contrasts and explains the experience of his believing Galatian Gentile readers and his own experience as a believing Jew, how they had moved from slavery to freedom. That will give us a grasp of what Paul means by the freedom for which Christ has set us free. Let's start with the one for the Gentiles. Back in chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, here's how Paul describes their experience. I quote, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? 
Freedom for the Gentile was freedom from what Paul describes as the weak and miserable forces that oppressed them. The gods that they served that were not gods. The issues of fortune and fate and the stars and the magic that involved, magic in the ancient world involved invoking the spirits of the dead to do things to your enemies and your friends, calling up the underworld. Um, all this world in which they lived, that was what they were, were slaves to and set free when they came to know God, or rather be known by God. For the Jew, like Paul, and here we go to Galatians 4, 1 to 6, slightly different, but end up the same place. Here the picture is of being um, a, a member of the family, but while you're still a little kid, you're bossed around and no better, no better than being a slave. Yeah? So he writes, what I'm saying is as long as an heir is an underage, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, that is before Christ came, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. By the way, this would have been a very radical and shocking thing for Paul to say because no Jew thought they'd been in slavery to the things that the Gentiles were in slavery to. But here it's saying it. Paul may have in mind the fact that the gods, the so-called gods of the Romans or of the Greeks or of the Persians or of the Babylonians or of the Syrians had ruled over them because... Israel was under the oppression of these nations, or it may be something even darker. But now, he says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. We Jews, we Israelites. So, they have now been redeemed in a world in which he says, receive adoption to sonship. It's difficult, as I said, to, to translate ancient concepts in our, our world. Um, Paul is using a metaphor of the adoption metaphor. And in, in the ancient world, adoption was basically about, not about little kiddies, like in our world. It was about young adult men being adopted and into families given a new legal and familial status usually in order to become inheritors. So, so Julius Caesar adopted, I think it was his nephew, Octavian, as his successor, as his son. So that when Julian got caught, killed, Octavian had the right to claim to be, and he then had all the wars to prove it, to prove to be the true son of the deified Julius. So that's what adoption was in the ancient world. And that's what Paul's saying here. We have been redeemed from the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And that means, in the last verse, verse 6, the freedom of knowing God as your dear father. Because you are his sons, Paul has sent the, the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls Abba, Father. Two points of explanation. The word Abba may seem strange to you. It seems strange to the Galatians because it's not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. Why an Aramaic word in, the, in their praying? 
just by about, I think, sheer luck of the way in which the Gospel of Mark is written, we know, look at the story in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus called God Abba. That was because he spoke Aramaic, of course. And that's a strange thing. Here are these Greek speakers addressing God, not in their own language, but in the language of Jesus, his own word. Think about what that's saying. What it's saying is that, in a sense, Jesus has shared his sonship with them. He shared the fatherhood of his father with them. That's why we pray when the Spirit calls, Abba, Father, Father, my Father. Secondly, notice that verse 6 is for Jew and Gentile. Because you are his sons, he writes, you being the readers, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Um, Note on grammar. In Galatians, you and us can mean either you versus us, we, we Jews or we apostles versus you Gentiles, but also the word us can mean us, all of us. Uh, that it's, it's, amb- it's ambivalent. Here I think it means all of us. Because you are his sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. We are now one, he is in Christ, as we cry, Abba, Father. So, what kind of freedom is this? You must be asking. Come on, Robert. It is the freedom of sonship. It is the freedom of being a true child of God. It is the freedom of knowing the creator of all that is, ineffable God, as Abba, Father. That's the freedom. It is so much more than mere freedom of choice in a meanness world. The freedom that Christ has freed us to is a freedom of being. A freedom of being. Yes, it is actually um, the freedom of your authentic self because you were created for this. But it's discovered, not in some inner voice, discovered in the gospel, the Son of God, and I might add, the working of the Holy Spirit. It is freedom from the slavery that comes from serving anything other than God himself, what God calls those by nature, not God's. So be warned, or the elemental spirits of the world, be warned, if you serve something other than God himself, you are heading back into slavery under the elemental spirits of the world. That's what Paul is saying here. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Abba Father, we thank you that in your mercy you have sent your Son to redeem us also from our slavery. We, thank, we ask you to enable us to, to live in this freedom that Christ has given us and never, and never return to a form of slavery. Help us to serve you from our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.